Hi, I'm Kerry Brower. I'm the Deputy Director and Chief Curator here at the Hirshhorn. And uh, we're very, very fortunate to have with us tonight um, Lynn Cook, who has curated this amazing exhibition of the work of Blinky Palermo, a retrospective 1964 to 1977. And um, as you may know uh, or have heard, uh, Blinky Palermo's work is, we feel at the museum, uh, extremely important in the development of abstract painting in the second half of the 20th century. And uh, without Palermo, there would be uh, a, a big a dearth of, of abstract painters who followed, and also his colleagues, I think, would have been the lesser for it. So this show has been very important for us to have here at the museum, and we're very happy that uh, uh, Lynn could come and uh, talk about the exhibition. She came and also hung the show, which I have to say, for me, is one of the most beautiful shows uh, that I've ever seen. Absolutely magnificent. Let me just, before we, I turn it over to Lynn, I want to say a few things about her, but I'd also like to thank a, a, a few people in the audience and see who's around here. Um, first of all, I'd like to, I think uh, Evelyn Hankins isn't here this evening, but I'd like to thank Deborah Horowitz, who shared coordinating duties uh, uh, with Evelyn. Uh, there's Deborah back there in the corner, uh, dressed in blinky Palermo black uh, in the corner. And um, I'd also like to thank, uh, well, David Dixon's back there, who's uh, done a lot of work on this show, got the magazine out on time. And uh, um, also um, Jenny Leahy is here, who's, who puts all of these talks together, which is great. This one's more informal tonight, by the way. We usually do these in the auditorium, but we're doing a little bit like we did with the Eve Klein show, actually. We did a walkthrough for that as well, only we brought in like six people who sort of uh, a judo experts. So, so at the end of this, Lynn, if you want to demonstrate some uh, judo, um, that, you know, Blinky Palermo style. Um, but, um, uh, and also, uh, Christy Maruca is, is, is here, I think, who uh, works on everything and keeps these things under control. So thank you. I'm sure I'm forgetting someone who's here, but thanks to everyone. I do want to thank Barbara and Aaron Levine tonight uh, for their extra help uh, with the exhibition. And um, Lynn Cook, I, you know, I just want to say, oh, and I want to thank Al, uh, uh, because Al, actually, Al Miner, who's standing over there, actually began to work on this show. I couldn't, how could I miss you in your green shirt, Al? Uh, Al actually jumped ship. Uh, you know, Blinky was a little too tough for him, so he jumped and he uh, became assistant curator at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, where he's doing fantastic work, uh, coming up with an Ori Gerst exhibition, which will be just fabulous, and uh, he's, he's doing a great job up there. But he actually began work on this exhibition uh, as the coordinator here uh, uh, with Lynn, I think had several meetings, so uh, this is... Uh, uh, do to you too, Al. So congratulations. Um, Lynn Cook is uh, a curator that I admire uh, perhaps more than any other curator. Her sensibility is so similar to what I like. Someone just called me a California curator because I, I tend to hang minimally and with lots of space in between. I don't think you're from California, although maybe Australia counts. I don't know. Maybe there's, there's something to that. But um, uh, uh, she has done such marvelous work uh, for Dia over the years as curator there. Um, she's also now the chief curator and deputy director at the Reina Sofia uh, in Madrid. 
and um, has done marvelous work there uh, as well. She's done exhibitions that I've seen over the years. There's, I just looked at your resume, Lynn, and I think I actually hurt my back lifting it. It was so long. Uh, but amazing exhibitions over the years of James Coleman and Thomas Schutte and Tacita Dean uh, 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 more recently, and, um, and of course this lovely, lovely Blinky Palermo um, exhibition. Um, Lynn is, has written for pretty much um, every publication. Uh, you did the Sydney Biennial in 1996 and uh, the Carnegie International in 1991, I think, and um, uh, has also published uh, extensively and has taught many different places in London, at Bard, uh, among other places. So we're very fortunate in, in having Lynn here with us this evening. She's also the recipient of a number of International Association of Critics uh, awards for her exhibitions. Um, and also you have won the... Um, Independent Curator International Agnes Gunn Curatorial Award uh, as well, and uh, has done so many, many, many wonderful things. Uh, has written also for Art Forum, the Burlington Magazine, uh, and Parquet. And so we welcome uh, Lynn here tonight. Uh, please join me in welcoming her and enjoy your tour. Well, I'd, I'd like to begin by thanking Carrie for this very generous welcome. And also to thank the whole team here, um, from Al, who was one of the first people I met on staff as we began planning uh, the tour of the Palermo show here, to many, many other people, um, Deborah, the crew, Scott, and uh, the whole staff. It's a first-rate team. This um, Blinky Palermo retrospective is really the first in North America, and Palermo may not be a household name, though I the large number of people here suggest there is a strong interest in his work. Uh, but he's very much an artist-artist. And by that I mean he's an artist who is admired by, he was admired by his peers, and he is much admired by younger artists. And not just painters, but artists of many stripes, photographers, conceptual artists, sculptors, and so on. And they admire him, I think, for a variety of reasons. One is the the sensibility of the work, the um, openness, porousness was a word that Joseph Boyce, his teacher, used about his attitude as much as his practice, and I'll come back to that later. But um, the variety of options and proposals he makes in his work, and we'll see that as we move through, uh, rather than for any adhering to a fixed style or closing down um, in search of definitive answers. So it's one is about an attitude, <coughs> in a way of making work. It's also about a way of being an artist. And Thomas Schutter said to me once that, and he was from the next generation from Palermo, and some of Schutter's early work, can, can, you can see a dialogue with, with Palermo, but more important was his attitude, his willingness to follow uh, where his inquiries led him, irrespective of the market, his ability to, pace, uh, to follow a pace that his own needs dictated rather than producing relentlessly, his ability to stand aside um, from the kind of fervor of the, the a market position, and I think that's something that many artists have seen. Also, there are times that Palermo clearly has blocks when 
almost nothing is produced for a year. So even within uh, a very short career, and you have to remember that his life was cut off in mid-career. This is not a finished oeuvre, a body of work made over 30 years. It's a body of work over 13 years, 12 years, a very short span in a sense. And so I think it's important when we look at it not to see it coming to some kind of fruition and culmination, but to think about the strands that are left open for other artists and other generations to pick up on. But nonetheless, um, there are some other things I think we should pay attention to. And one is a practice in which Palermo worked simultaneously in different manners. And I'll speak more about that as we start to walk through the exhibition. But his, um, his practice doesn't involve as a linear unfolding from one type of work or one body of work to the next. He works concurrently in several modes, choosing works on the wall or works with involving cloth or works involving found objects depending on the impulse on the situation on the context and this coexistence of several ways of working is what we often think of now as a postmodern practice it's something that you see uh, becoming very current in artists working in the 80s and particularly in the 90s and onwards so that too I think um, makes Palermo seem prescient and very fresh one of the reasons he's not been seen uh, to date in the US, uh, I think, is because he never really established himself here, although, in fact, he immigrated or relocated in 1973. And the relatively small body of work, which is still largely in the hands of German collectors and German institutions. So there's not until recently been very much uh, on an an American market or seen in American institutions. And um, for that reason, his colleagues and close friends, Gerhard Richter and Sigmar Polka, who both obviously outlived him by decades, uh, are the much better known of the trio. Palermo, as I said, was a student of voice. He um, was born in Eastern Europe, formerly in Leipzig. The in Leipzig in the former DDR. And uh, when he entered Boyce's class in Dusseldorf at the academy, um, Boyce looked at him and said something as Palermo was standing there with paintbrush, like, you've got to, if you want to change your manner, you've got to change, change yourself. And supposedly, as, and it's possibly partly apocryphal, Palermo changed his name at that point. Uh, it was kind of a wholesale rethinking. And he um, had been born Peter Schwartz. He became Peter Heisterkamp. He was adopted at a very early age and taken to West Berlin, grew up in the Rhineland. And he moved, uh, he adopted this surrogate, Blinky Palermo, uh, supposedly based on a resemblance uh, he had to the mafioso boxing manager of the, American, uh, the fighter, Sonny Liston. But I think. I mean, whether or not he had this resemblance, the fact it was an American moniker, uh, and it, it was significant. He had a strong interest in American culture, in jazz, in beat literature, in abstract expressionist painting, and in more of an American vernacular culture to some extent, from his teenage years. And in some ways, this was not, would not be um, so unusual for uh, a German adolescent. In the 60s, um, with the Marshall Plan, the U.S. US um, 
impact in Western Germany and the impact of American culture was widespread. But Palermo's interest was deeper and from the time he became a mature artist, he really wanted to situate himself and his work not in relation to a strictly German tradition but to an international one and that ipso facto really meant an American dialogue. For artists um, working on cutting edge in the 60s, some of the galleries in the Rhineland, like um, Conrad Fischer, were uh, the most adventurous galleries anywhere in the world. And some American artists, like Carl Andre or Robert Ryman, uh, Solowit, had many, had their first shows in some instances and consistently showed there uh, when they weren't able to show always um, in, in New York. So there was a, there was a strong um, access to American uh, minimal work, uh, early conceptual work um, in Palermo's milieu. And uh, he got to know American artists early on and began showing with the same galleries. So in addition to the kind of milieu of Boyce and Marcel Broders and Yves Klein, who was a very big figure on the Dusseldorf scene, there was this um, access to American art uh, going on concurrently. And through those friendships, they were friendships when he then, uh, which he picked up further uh, when he moved to the US. But what you see in this first gallery is um, what I would say is his first mature work. And this painting that faces you from the entrance is painting with eight red squares. And uh, I think most of you would probably see an immediate rapport with the work of uh, Malevich or, and Mondrian. And this is... Um, this is definitely intended. Palermo seems to have made a trip from Dusseldorf to Amsterdam to the Stedelijk to look at the Malevich's, one of the great collection of Malevich's work in the world. And also, of course, he would have seen Mondrian in force there. And this work is a direct response, homage, and a, a sense of commitment to uh, modernist, early modernist painting. And of course, while it's that, it's also different. Um, the touch is different. The, um, what you could say, the sloppiness or the makeshiftness. I would not call it sloppy I would, because I think it's a consistency throughout his work. But leaving um, visible the means of making in a very um, direct way. So you see the graphite as he's... Uh, drawn in the squares on, on the ground, and he's painted approximately up to it. He doesn't use tape. His edges are never, never crisp in the way that, uh, and, and um, have raised the hand in the way that, say, uh, Ellsworth Kelly would. He's not interested in that kind of precision, in that kind of almost um, uh, removal of a, a kind of mechanistic purity that you might see in Kelly. These are always the touch, the irregularities, the slightly off geometries, uh, indicative of what you'll see in Palermo all the way through. Um, there's this painting and then other kinds of explorations into um, figure ground relations that are essentially geometric in these two paintings. And in this one called Blue Bridge, you, there's a residual indication of a motif or a reference to the external world. It's unusual in his work to have any kind of form that looks quasi-representational. I suspect he didn't um, have in mind drawing a bridge. 
he was making a painting and uh, as the painting came to resolve itself, he saw this reference and allowed it and became part of the title. On the whole, um, Palermo's work is engaged with the world around him, but not usually through referential means, more through the materials and the source of materials and even the way he handles them. I see you're a bit crowded, so let's move into the next gallery and pick up some of those points. We are now in a room that contains one of the first categories of Palermo's work, which is the objects. And as you can see, just by walking around that curve, it's a fairly seamless evolution from the paintings into things that are like paintings, but are much less conventional. Uh, so you pass something, that angled piece, the white and red piece on the curve, which if you look at closely, possibly is part of a window frame. It's, it's some found piece of something and it looks um, as if it might have been, it's, it's an architectural, something probably found from architecture. And the fact it's, it's kind of a discarded or um, inconsequential piece of stuff that he's appropriated and um, painted and sometimes, as in this instance where these three pieces of wood have, uh, he's wrapped cloth around them before painting them. And these might be the kinds of um, pieces of wood that are used to make um, the frame of a canvas. In a way, you could think of this as a collapse painting uh, in some senses. It clearly has the constituents of a painting in physical or material terms. It's, and the element in the center is painted canvas. So it's, it's painted canvas held up by uh, a framework of, of wooden structures. It just happens to take a very different kind of configuration and therefore to talk about the um, fundaments of painting in quite different terms. And you could see that again, for example, in this one over here where um, there's some kind of found form that's been very uh, roughly covered with a piece of material uh, that forms a ground and onto that he stenciled a triangle and then repeated that triangle now outside the rectilinear framework. The rectilinear framework's already skewed and he's made uh, a, a figure ground relationship that speaks to the ground of the painting and the wall as a ground. And in this dialogue or binary relationship, I think you can see him moving from um, the thing that's the support in the painting being uh, a planar element to a, the planar structure of the wall and the object using um, and appropriating space, which is the space of the wall. So the space is not so much inside the object, it's the space that's activated around it. And then uh, in the one down there, made between 64 and 67, he's, he, that double dating suggests that he, um, he worked on it in some form and reworked it over time. And again, you see this um, triangle, which becomes a kind of leitmotif that runs through a lot of his work, and particularly the blue triangle, which uh, becomes a kind of logo that he plays with in different ways. And if you look above the door frame there from that, you can see that a blue triangle has been stenciled onto the wall. And the um, means of making it are in the multiple, which is a box, uh, a vitrine, in a vitrine to the side. 
and this idea of putting a blue triangle uh, over a doorway is something he investigated a number of times. He did it in his own studio. He did it over the doorways of studios of artists he admired, uh, Gerhard Richter in Dusseldorf, Robert Ryman in New York. He used it as a decorative element in a frieze for um, his contribution to an installation in Brussels at another time. And it comes back and forward in, and mutates in different ways. Sometimes it's not blue, sometimes the triangle's um, stretched into an isosceles triangle, sometimes it's clipped and its kind of expansion into space is um, generated that way. But it's, it's a form that um, has enormous elasticity and potential uh, for him. On the other hand, um, Motifs which, which are uh, harder to read but very suggestive and I would argue quite poetic is, uh, include this work on the wall here where you can see how the object takes over the whole wall. It commandeers the wall. It engages the space. It's called a Landschaft or Landscape and it's, in a way it's obvious um, but it's also uh, more than literal. It's, it opens up the space. It um, suggests landscapes of um, a very subtle and beautiful kind, I think, through the, the delicate harmonies between the blue and the green uh, that make up these forms. And again, his starting point is a very ordinary piece of wood uh, in the bottom case and um, another piece of wood which has got its own history and it's come off something or been used in some context. Uh, but putting them together, painting them, uh, allowing the cloth that's under the green uh, that's bluish to show through uh, sets up a whole train of association, spatial relationships that um, are meaningful within this broad general category of painting, uh, pa traditional painting motifs and painting histories that we call landscape. So you can see, I think, between these three examples, very different ways of thinking about painting, very um, sometimes quite analytical and deconstructive ways of thinking about what makes or constitutes a painting. Other times, uh, uh, as I said, a more poetic sens sensibility and a quite intuitive way of working that's as intuitive or more intuitive than it is um, coldly analytical and deductive. Also, I think it's just worth noting in terms of what we'll see further on, these two paintings, which in some ways um, look more conventional. The one over there, unfortunately, is in this um, traveling frame, which uh, doesn't do it justice. If you can imagine it without the frame and on the wall, you would, you would see more clearly that it's, it's, has a vertical plane and then a kind of narrow shelf and it curves because of the way he's pulled the cloth over it. It seems that the starting point is a chalkboard, uh, probably that went on the wall, and the little ledge is where the chalk would be, and perhaps it's a, for a, a, a child. It's um, given its dimensions and its size. But it's lost that identity, but taken on another through that manipulation. And then he seems to have drawn some kind of perspectival tentative perspectival um, configuration and then obscured that too. So it opens into a certain kind of space and then um, denies that. And on this side, you see a much more um, straightforwardly gestural painting. Uh, this time, 
of course, it's gone. It has its own frame. It too is kind of, unfortunately, in this um, overbearing white frame that uh, doesn't uh, help it. But if you come up close and look, you can see that it it was framed, and uh, the frame has then been worked on as well. It's the, he's kind of collapsed that notion of the edge of the picture as separation from the world. And he also has used a color scheme, which is rather rare, but uh, reminds us very directly of voice. Um, this and, and this orangey, brownish um, color, which one thinks of in relation to Braunkreutz in voice is also very close to the, a kind of anti-corrosive paint that would use, be used as an underpainting on metal and will turn up again later on. So there's no single strand, as I was saying before. He's, he's working in uh, a fairly open way, looking at a variety of questions around painting uh, without committing to any single mode of painting at this point, um, other than he's not making figurative work. Um, let's move on to the next space. I think one of the things that artists, other artists, like so much with Palermo is that on the one hand he's, he's deeply serious and deeply committed to his practice, but serious doesn't, uh, seriousness doesn't need to mean a, a lack of humor, or a la and he has a visual wit and a lightness of touch, which is very rare and, and very sp special. Um, and this kind of visual wit you can see in a number of ways. Um, perhaps in, in this work here, which is called Schmetterling or Butterfly. And uh, when you told the title, you see the aptness of it, and yet um, it's very difficult to say it. It looks like a butterfly in any sense. It's, it's not particularly the visual relationship or the um, representational rela relationship. It's a more metaphorical one, and it's, it's a playful one, I would say. Um, and also, I think you notice as you walked around the corner, you probably saw it from the side first and saw this really sharp red that goes down both sides and in a very irregular uh, edge. And as you come around the front, you can see that the red... Um, actually colors the, the wall plane. It, it seems to vibrate. It seems to shimmer in this red, um, this vibrating red halo or aura around it. And on the one hand, uh, there's the visual wit and the play with reference. On another, of course, it has a very high culture lineage in some respects. If you care to make a relationship, for example, to Barnett Newman's work, uh, Newman was an important painter for um, predecessor for Palermo and the paintings by Newman from 1950-51 there's one called The Wild which is as uh, narrow as it is deep and is, um, sets up something of this uh, the first zip, one of the first zips in Newman's work and has something of that kind of cutting through space and activating the space on either side of it. There's no void. There's actually um, a more energized field around it than perhaps within it. And, um, but Newman, of course, does it differently. And the use of the side or the edge is also something that other painters who were 
more Palermo's generation like Jobert were exploring too in the late 60s. Or um, you might even f think of Dan Flavin and how um, the lights color the ambience, they color the wall, they, they generate um, a field, uh, an energized field around them through the expansion of light into their immediate context. And, let's, and on this wall, you see one of three different work, closely related works. There's only one here um, called Lesersprecher, which um, means soft listener and may mean maybe someone who's a German speaker here. The idea of whispering may, may have some, um, an, some connotation to, uh, but I think also what's really important is to look at uh, the, this binary relationship. It's a different one from the two triangles in the piece in the previous gallery. On the one hand, you see a piece of cloth, colored cloth on the wall. Uh, the very basis of a painting. You see it framed on a stretcher. You see it directly in relation to the wall. They're similar but different. What, uh, I'm sorry, it's that, uh, please stay away from the, the blue stick and blue ball. Um, you, you see a different kind of notion of painting and its edges, its relationship to its milieu, its context set up here which will become uh, very important in subsequent work. And the idea that this is like free hanging cloth, um, is that sufficient to make a painting? Would this be the painting and this be the raw material? What, what would you describe as that relationship or are, are they in some ways co-equals? Around the corner, and it's perhaps too dense for us all to fit in, there is um, almost 40 panels in which Palermo has combined photographs and drawings and notations for uh, wall paintings and drawings he made over a period from the latest 60s through to about 1973. There are some 27 projects and uh, these were all temporary in situ uh, installations. They were never meant to be permanent. They were done in a variety of situations and contexts, some in domestic situations, some in his commercial galleries in Hanover and Dusseldorf and elsewhere, Munich, and some in public spaces like the Kunstverein in Frankfurt where he made an intervention under the stair railing by painting the negative space in a light gray, so bringing that space into an active relationship with the the rest of the stairwell, uh, or sometimes, uh, as in Documenta in 1972, painting uh, a whole section of a wall in the staircase, again, with um, a kind of orange paint that's very like this anti-corrosive, a non-fine art paint, a paint that has a utilitarian function in the world, or um, with a group of um, these documents that uh, on the left-hand side, as you walk past the curve, you'll see uh, an intervention in the art school in Edinburgh when a group of German artists made uh, a show there called Strategy Get Arts in the summer of 1970, where he has painted around the cornice at the top of the stairwell. The, in the diagrams that go with this, you'll see there's also a blue triangle over one of the archways, but at the top of 
as you climbed up the stairs, if you looked right up uh, where the skylights are, you would see that along one edge of the four-sided ceiling or aperture, he's painted it blue, another one red, another one white, another one yellow. These are four directions. They relate to the cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. And he's chosen the position of the blue... uh, the red, the white, and the yellow in relation to the movement of the sun. It took him over a year to make the first of what is the last group of paintings, um, which are called the metal paintings. And you see that grey painting just outside the gallery. It's a meter square. It's an absolutely standard measurement, you might say, and it's covered with an industrial paint. It's a simple grey monochrome. And you might, um, there were two others like it, painted with um, also industrial paints. Not um, a terribly exciting work, but a work that's beginning to um, probe another way of um, thinking about painting. And Following that, he then started to have uh, sheet metal um, rectangles cut for him. The sizes of many of these others are much more idiosyncratic, and he began to work with these um, central squares, which are visually are activated by bands top and bottom. And um, there, you'll see as you move into that room, there are many different opportunities and, and ways of playing with that. The work that's on the curve there is called Times of the Day. It's one of six. And you can see, if you think about it uh, from left to right, why it might have that title and how evocative it is of, uh, broadly speaking, different light conditions, different uh, color harmonies which, should, which generate light of uh, different force and tone. This work is, uh, we're standing in a gallery with one work in it. It's the largest extant work uh, Palermo made. It's uh, comprised of 15 different parts. They're all, they're all different literally and many of them are different uh, in size, shape and scale. The sequencing is set by Palermo and the, the spacing between the components that make up the parts is also set. So you'll see in this one that the gaps are the size of the elements, and that's true of all the multipartite ones. And then there's one uh, more idiosyncratic one at the end which has the same colors but in a different kind of configuration and so on. And you can think um, of rhythms and sequences and seriality and modular relationships, which were all issues uh, engaging painters of the time, whether it was Bryce Marden or Robert Ryman or um, other minimal artists. But here there's a kind of quirkiness. It is not um, a straightforward systemic relationship between the colors, and nor is it, um, it's quirky because of the different sizes. And the color is a, has a kind of importance and insistence as color that you wouldn't have found in much American painting at the time where whites and blacks and grays were the preferred palettes or a single rather subdued monochrome. So you see here I think that Palermo is a a kind of mid-Atlantic or transatlantic figure in that there are aspects to his work that speak directly to um, the discourse in American 
at the time, and particularly around minimalism and abstract painting. But there are elements that are uh, definitely, you might say, European or uh, recall his European heritage, and that would be color and the more quirky way of working with modularity and geometry. And I think it's not just his peers, but it goes back through Mo to Mondrian Malevich in some ways. It, um, the painting, was, this multipartite painting was never shown during his lifetime. It was found in his studio um, after he died. It uh, has inscribed on the back of it the phrase, to the people of New York City. And that has been taken as a title. It might not have been intended as one, but it seems like an homage or a gesture uh, to a city and a culture he was hugely engaged with. It was made in Dusseldorf. He still had a studio in Manhattan, but he went back uh, for various reasons to Dusseldorf late in 1976 and made it in his studio there. Um, the colors, of course, refer to the colors of the German flag. It's, uh, it's a, a set of three colors he'd used on occasion before, but never as fulsomely as this. And you, people have seen it as um, a dialogue between his native country, Germany, through the, that relationship, and uh, a, an engagement with um, his, he, the country he wanted to be or the context he wanted to be. Uh, part of. And um, there are other ways of thinking about it, but that would seem to be uh, part of its complex content. Although it was found in his studio um, and is, as I said, the largest and extant work and the most complex of the late works, it would be wrong, I think, to see it as a culmination or a summum. He did not commit suicide. It was not an intended ending point and summation. It's, he died through misfortune by accident, uh, and therefore it just happens to have been made at the end of his career, but it wasn't uh, where he got to, so to speak. And I think you see that very much in the last room, where um, the, for, uh, the very fortunate um, architecture of this floor means that we go from a large and a grand space in which there's this very monumental work into a small space. And that's, that isn't my decision. That's given by the architecture. And in this small space, we're back into a much more intimate relationship with the work. And you see works of different types. There are more metal paintings with a play between the inner square and the bands and the changing color harmonies. Uh, one of the paintings was titled Coney Island, which again suggests um, observation in the world, vernacular color harmonies, and so on. But uh, you see two other works which are each quite the, they're unique. There's nothing else like them. One is uh, made up of four white vertical strips that have tips which are blue or black. It suggests a whole other form of uh, exploration, different kind of structure. And right to the side of it is um, a vertical, smaller work which is gestural. That was painted in New York and left behind when he made this trip back to Dusseldorf in late 76. Whether it's finished or not is in dispute, but it clearly shows that he was still interested in uh, a gestural mode. There's another uh, work that's not here that combines a more geometric edging with a gestural mode. 
And I think it suggests that he was thinking um, about bringing different strands together in a wholly new way. He was, the situation was very open. And we're left, I think, with that sense of openness and of un, not just unfulfilled promise, I don't want to make it a kind of tragic story, but a sense of possibility and proposals that were still very much on the table. And I think it's in that that so many artists subsequently have found inspiration, found um, the possibility of engaging with his work because uh, of this porousness that my voice spoke about. His, he was never um, one to be worried by the, uh, or subject to an anxiety of influence. He um, engaged again and again with uh, many great artists and predecessors in a very easy way. Uh, many artists are worried about being too overwhelmed by a significant predecessor. They um, try and kind of cover their tracks at the same time as they take from what exists. Not Palermo. It's kind of clear and open and uh, a kind of easy inquiry and easy exchange. And that's, that has an, also another sense of lightness to it. And that kind of open dialogue, I think, is something that has been appreciated by so many other artists and has contributed, as I said, to making him uh, an artist artist above all. If you have questions or comments, I'd be happy to try and answer. Well, as I said, he looked at Mondrian Malevich, early 20th century modernist. He was particularly interested in Rothko and Newman, uh, he was who were a generation earlier. He was interested in his peers and felt a challenge and, uh, from Robert Ryman, Bryce Marden, possibly Donald Judd, uh, Michael Asher, uh, John Knight, a whole range of people, depending on what mode he was working in and what, who was kind of part of that particular dialogue. Yes. Um, the question is about painting and its relationship to sculpture. And I think that many artists were um, breaking out of the conventional rectilinear format. There were artists working with shaped canvases and think of Frank Stella, uh, Ellsworth Kelly and others. Uh, and others um, like Palermo also interested in the objectness of the painting. Uh, not its illusory qualities, but its physicality. And that um, might lead one to think of sculptural issues and sculptural questions. There, um, there are artists, of course, who were working across categories very much in the late 60s and 70s. There's a kind of hybrid motion between performance and painting, between actions and uh, documentation. And so a sense of... Um, the objectness of sculpture may be part of it, but in large part, he, he self-identifies as a painter. He saw himself as a painter. Uh, but then there are subsequent painters, sculptors, like Jessica Stockholder, where that becomes a, a, a much blurrier kind of distinction. 
Yes. Um, gesturing is like you see the brush making marks in a big, broad way. The marks stand apart. They're like handwriting of a kind, free, loosely brushed. The hand is still there. Um, the viscosity, the kind of liquidness of the paint is such that you see the drag of the brush. Um, you also see that, as I said before, he doesn't use tape. So the edges are drawn by hand. They have a slight irregularity. The, the sense of the hand is present, but the gesture as a stroke that has a kind of um, signature look to it is not here. These are, these are much more um, cool and, and individual strokes are blended to make a field. In some of the others, uh, the single stroke, you can follow where the brush went across the surface. Um, hung, well he, this was the biggest kind of um, gallery based painting. He occupied spaces as big as this with the wall paintings. Um, none of his galleries were as, his commercial galleries probably had spaces quite as big as this. But he, um, in New York he was showing with Heine Friedrich and the gallery, the Heine Friedrich Gallery in 1977-78 is the space that is currently occupied by Walter de Maria's Earth Room. If you know that space on Green Street in Soho. It's, and he made this painting, I think, expecting that it would be shown in that space. So it would have fitted. It, it's, um, it's a, for the time, it was a kind of medium-sized gallery. And this would have fitted, but not... Uh, more tightly. But um, it was first shown at Deer, uh, in a space that Deer had on West 22nd Street for many years, and it was installed by a very close friend of his, the painter Imi Knobel, and Knobel stretched it way out. So the parts were on different surfaces you couldn't see at all um, from one position given the configuration of the space. So it had, I think, an inherent kind of elasticity to it. I mean, all the elements have to be present together, but the distances can change and it, you could have a dog leg space, which um, actually is a space that the Friedrich Gallery um, had in Soho. So I think it's, it um, takes occupy spaces of different kinds. Oh, it was less an installation than an in situ work where he painted walls. Um, he'd done that a number of times and other artists were doing it, but there was something to the local people in Hamburg that was infuriating. Like, there was no art there, I suppose, is what they thought. I mean, it's not the first time where the space has been made visible uh, through an intervention that appears to be minimal, de-skilled, uh, non-artistic. Uh, with Inside. The, imagine, imagine a gallery not much bigger than this, but it's rectilinear rather than curved, and it has a series of partition walls inside it, uh, which don't touch the perimeter walls, and 
artists would work you know, on those walls. They would, they would make smaller spaces and normally they would you know, hang paintings or photographs or whatever. He didn't put anything in the space. He simply painted the pre-existing partition walls with what looks like undercoating or the equivalent. So it looked like he hadn't done anything or what he'd done was um, a kind of nihilistic gesture. I mean, we've seen that before Yves Klein famously um, closed the gallery or you know, there was nothing but space. Fishley and Weiss have uh, made objects which look like the stuff that the carpenters use when they're preparing the space. And there, there's a long tradition of engaging with spaces in different ways. Um, but Palemos was a question about painting and in situ painting and he was very interested, you'll see in some of those other projects, in um, not just the painting as a window onto the world, but on, on what the relationship of decorative painting was. And of course, decoration is a kind of taboo subject for uh, a modernist artist. So the idea of decorating the lintels and the sopraportes and all the architectural elements that in the Baroque uh, uh, a, a major artist might do, not just a scene painter. N Adolf Loos Luce spoke about ornamentation and crime. Um, there has been this idea in modernist painting that decoration, ornamentation is anathema. Um, Palermo is playing with that when he's painting part of the entablature. Um, it's not just that he's lassoing and uh, animating the space, he's actually uh, re recalling those those arguments.